Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And just in case this sounds different, it's because I'm once again recording on my own equipment, but in the office studio. So just in case you think it sounds weird, and it's not just me, that's why. But we recently did a history of the evolution of the spacesuit and how countries like Russia and the United States dedicated millions of dollars in research and development to create suits that would help astronauts and cosmonauts survive the rigors of traveling to space and then back to Earth. I mentioned the International Space Station a couple of times in that series and thought, you know, I haven't really done any episodes talking about space stations or how the ISS came to be and what folks do up there as they whiz around the Earth at 4.76 miles per second or uh, 7.66 kilometers per second for, you know, everyone who's not in the U.S. And I figured that it was more than past time to cover these sort of things because, you know, the modules that make up the ISS were originally rated for a 15-year lifespan. But the first modules for the International Space Station launched in 1998. So if you do your math, 
That means that puts the 15-year mark at 2013, and we are well past that. As it stands, there's hope that we could see the ISS continue to operate for another few years to 2028 and hit that 30-year mark. But recently, we've seen some claims that suggest the end might need to come a little earlier than that if we want to avert catastrophe because parts of the ISS are a little worse for wear. But of course, this is tech stuff. That means we have to dive into a lot of history before we get to the ISS. In fact, spoiler alert, we won't be touching on the International Space Station in this episode. We'll be getting to that in a later one. Uh, So the International Space Station was not the first space station in orbit. That honor goes to the first Salyut space station, and there were multiple of those. And those came from the then Soviet Union. Now, earlier this year, we passed the 50th anniversary of the launch of Salyut 1. Uh, That got off the ground literally on April 19th, 1971. Now, this space station is important for quite a few reasons. Not only was it the first space station, but elements in the Salyut would continue down through a line of different space station and spacecraft designs out of the USSR and then later out of Russia to find their way into components that are now part of the International Space Station. So it's all going to tie together in the end. But first, let's talk about Salyut which means salute, surprisingly enough. Uh, It got its start in the 1960s with Soviet scientists discussing the possibility of developing a space station specifically for military purposes. So this project had the name Almaz, A-L-M-A-Z, which means diamond in Russian, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. My apologies to all you Russian speakers out there. So the real purpose of the Almaz stations were to serve as reconnaissance operations, so spying, in other words. Now, generally speaking, it's not incredibly wise to advertise that you're engaged in spying. It's kind of defeats the purpose. So the Soviets decided that they would mask that and they would launch a series of civilian space stations Uh, specifically dedicated to scientific research, and then they would just kind of hide the military ones in the mix. So some of those stations would genuinely be about scientific exploration and experimentation. Some of them were more about peeping on the neighbors. Also, the original plan was for the Almaz stations to be modular in design, but The success of the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969 spurred the Soviets to move up their timeline, and that necessitated a change in plans. So instead of going with the modular Almaz space station, uh, which would mean that you'd have to launch components in separate launches and then crews would need to go up into space and assemble those modules together to create a space station, the Soviets decided to instead rely on a Salyut design, an all-in-one space station that could be launched fully constructed into space. The first Salyut was one of the civilian missions, so not one of the secret military ones. Uh, Salyut 2, 3, and 5 were all military projects, so they were really mixed in there. Also, quick side note, Salyut 2 suffered a catastrophic failure just two weeks out of it being launched into orbit, The station depressurized after a collision with 
uh, a, a, a part of the launch vehicle system and ended up moving lower in orbit until it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and broke apart. Now, fortunately, there were no cosmonauts aboard because no Soviet crew had yet visited the launched station, which meant that no lives were lost as a result of this uh, incident. So to visit a Salyut station in order to get there, a crew of cosmonauts would launch inside a Soyuz space capsule. I talked about those in the spacesuit episodes. And this capsule would be you know, attached to a launch vehicle, a rocket in other words. And the Soyuz capsule would get launched into orbit and then it would be uh, on a, a trajectory to dock with the Salyut station using a new probe and drogue docking system. So the probe is the part that you know, docks inside the drogue. And it was originally going to have the name Zarya, the original uh, the original space station was. In fact, it had that name so long that engineers actually painted the name on the spacecraft. It had the name Zarya on it. Uh, that means dawn, by the way. However, for several reasons, and they were all pretty valid ones, the Soviets decided that they needed to rename the spacecraft. So they renamed it Salyut, but there wasn't enough time to give the space station a new paint job. So while it was named Salyut, it had the name Zarya painted on it. Uh, also, the development of the Salyut station had some drama attached to it. And I'm going to have to do a full episode about the Soviet-era space program to talk more about not just the program and the technology used and the goals of the program, but also the rivalries that existed within the program itself. Uh, so the guy who designed the Soyuz spacecraft was Sergei Korolov, and the guy who came up with the Almaz Reconnaissance Station, which eventually got merged into the Salyut program, was Vladimir uh, Chelemy. And Chelemy also designed the Transport Supply Ship, or the TKS. That was designed to resupply the Almaz Space Station. And these two... These two Soviets had some pretty intense battles within the Soviet space program, and each attempted to leverage various political favors in order to push their own projects ahead of the other. So I will have to do a full episode about that at some point. It's pretty fascinating. But let's talk about the first Salyut space station briefly. The main part of the station was cylindrical. It measured 48 feet long, or about 14.6 meters, and it was a stepped cylinder. So in other words, like it wasn't a smooth cylinder. There were sections of the cylinder that had uh, uh, different diameters, right? So you might have a few meters of, of space that are one diameter and the next few are different. So at its widest section, which was the rear of the spacecraft, it measured 13.9 feet or 4.25 meters in diameter. And inside, there was around 3,500 cubic feet of volume for the cosmonauts to live and work in. And as a NASA page on the topic puts it, it was about the size of a large in-ground swimming pool inside there. Though not the shape, but, you know, same sort of space. The station solar arrays that collected energy from the sun to power the station were really important, right? They were using solar power to provide electrical power to the station. And it also had a lot of scientific equipment aboard, enough that the equipment weighed 2,600 pounds here on Earth, or just under 1,180 kilograms. It had antenna, 
to allow it to transmit messages back to Earth, very important. And the cosmonauts were meant to inhabit the station, conduct observations and experiments using the various equipment and telescopes aboard the station, and generally push science forward by leagues. Uh, Heck, the cosmonauts themselves were technically experiments because no one was really sure what the long-term effects of a prolonged mission in space might be on the human body. Uh, And of course, there were the military operations as well, where cosmonauts would be conducting reconnaissance missions rather than scientific ones. Now, the station included a refrigerator and a food warmer. Cosmonauts wore special suits that provided resistance to major muscle groups in order to, you know, exercise. And the reason for that was to fight against the tendency for cosmonauts to lose significant muscle mass while just maneuvering through a microgravity environment. The resistance meant that Just moving around would require a bit more exertion than normal, and the station also had a treadmill as well as elastic restraints to hold you onto the treadmill so that the cosmonauts could take exercise for the same reasons. You know, you wanted to fight against things like muscle loss and bone density loss as best you could. Unfortunately, when the first Salyut space station entered orbit in April 1971, the protective cover for the scientific instruments stayed in place rather than jettisoning off from the station as was planned. And that meant that a lot of those experiments just couldn't happen because the instruments were still covered by a casing that you couldn't remove. Uh, Still, the station was habitable. And on April 23rd, the Soyuz 10 space capsule launched, carrying three cosmonauts headed off to move into the station. Only there was an issue. The probe and drogue apparatus failed to create a good docking seal, so there was no hard lock with the space station. So the crew of the capsule could not make the transfer over into the space station, so they were forced to ultimately return home without having gone into the space station. But then a subsequent crew aboard the next capsule, Soyuz 11, which had a newly designed probe to interlock interlock with the uh, drogue mechanism on the space station, that launched on June 6th of that year. So the first Salyut did eventually get a crew. It just took a couple of tries. That crew stayed aboard the station for 24 days. That was a record for the amount of time spent in space at that point. And tragically, that crew perished on their way back to Earth. In fact, from what I understand, these are the only people at least acknowledged anyway, who have died in space. There have been a lot of accidents related to space missions, but most of them have happened within the atmosphere of Earth. Um, This one did not. The Soyuz capsule depressurized, and tragically all three crew members died as a result. And in fact, this was the tragedy that would change the way the Soviet Union approached uh, the Soyuz capsule and spacesuits. If you remember from the spacesuit episodes, the Soviets decided for a while that they just would do away with pressure suits and spacesuits for any missions that didn't require extravehicular activities, that is, spacewalks. But after the disaster of Soyuz 11, the, the Soviets then redesigned the Soyuz capsule, and it would only carry a crew of two cosmonauts instead of three, and that would allow enough space inside the capsule for both of those cosmonauts to wear pressurized spacesuits during launch and landing to protect against this sort of thing and to at least give them a chance. 
As for that first space station, it remained in orbit for 175 days, and the redesign of the Soyuz capsule meant that no other crew was going to be able to visit Salyut before it was no longer habitable, and so the Soviets chose to deorbit the space station so that it would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and break apart over the Pacific Ocean. So only one crew actually got to the first Salyut space station. And we already mentioned that the second Salyut space station, the first of the military ones, experienced a catastrophic failure, uh, again, fortunately, without anyone inside it. But then the Soviets launched lots of other ones. And the third space station went up just a few days before the United States was to launch its own first space station. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But anyway... That third one also failed to achieve orbit and would receive the name Cosmos 557. And information on that is kind of limited. The Soviets were incredibly secretive with their space program. And so finding reliable sources that talk about hard facts is difficult. You get a lot of you get a lot of speculation and you get a lot of reports that may or may not be reliable. In fact, NASA just described this as quote, an unmanned Soyuz-type vehicle, end quote, and that the funding agency is, quote, unknown, end quote. But then in parentheses behind that, it says USSR. So I guess kind of known? Anyway, the actual Salyut 3 mission, which was one of the military missions disguised as a civilian one, reportedly included the testing of a 23-millimeter gun attached to the station. So, like, um... Like a conventional gun, <laughs> uh, actually is part of a uh, station weaponry. Now, there's very little information on this, so I hesitate to relay any stories about it. And besides, a lot of stuff has actually contradictory reports, so it's hard for me to say what happened because there are accounts that contradict each other. But yeah, at least according to some stories, this was the first spacecraft to be weaponized, and at least some of the stories indicate that the Soviets did test fire it while the space station was in orbit, though supposedly not when any crew were actually aboard the space station. So the command to fire the gun was given from the ground. The way this gun was on the station, by the way, you couldn't move the gun to point at targets. You would actually have to reorient the entire station to point at whatever it was you're going to fire at. Uh, don't have much more information about that. Got a lot of speculation, though. In total, there were seven official Salyut space stations, but nine attempts. Uh, the Cosmos 557 was one of the failed attempts, and another one was called the DOS-2 space station. Both of those failed to achieve orbit, so they didn't get the Salyut designation. Then again, as I mentioned, the Salyut-2 space station achieved orbit, but had to be deorbited within two weeks due to malfunctions. Uh, Salyut 6 and 7 were of a different design than their predecessors. The older Salyut stations had a single docking port at one end of the cylinder, and that's where the Soyuz capsule would connect to the station. But 6 and 7 had two docking ports, one on either end, so the Soyuz capsule could dock at one side of the cylinder, and the other side could serve as a docking point for resupply ships. In addition, it made it possible for a second Soyuz capsule to dock with the station. So you could have two crews aboard the station at once, each with uh, you know two cosmonauts, and they could meet at the space station simultaneously. This allowed the Soviets to have some guest cosmonauts go on trips to the space stations in orbit. 
The cargo ships, called Progress, were automated, and they would dock with new supplies. So there was no crew aboard these. It was just, you know, resupply ships. These were all important steps toward creating the next generation of space stations. Now, the first six Salyut space stations launched in the 1970s. Most of them re-entered the Earth's atmosphere just a few months after they had launched, so they didn't stay up there for very long. Uh, Salyut 5 stuck around a little bit longer. It launched in June 1976 and stayed up until August of 1977, so it was up for more than a year. Salyut 6 went up in September 1977 and re-entered Earth's atmosphere in July of 1982, so it was up there for about five years. Then the final mission launched in April 1982 and stayed up until February 1991, so nearly a decade. Pretty impressive for an early space station design. The civilian stations all had a core module that had the designation DOS, so that DOS-2 was one of those. The military stations had a core modular designation as uh, OPS. The DOS design would then extend beyond the Salyut era into the next phase of the Soviet Union's space program, which would include the Mir, which, spoiler alert, we also won't get to in this episode. But when we come back... We'll switch over to talk about Skylab for a bit, but first, let's take a break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the Soviets were launching space stations in 1971, and it would take a couple of years before the United States was ready to follow suit. But we've got some overlap that we need to talk about, because obviously this stuff isn't just happening, you know, one after the other. There's a lot of stuff happening at the same time. And actually, we need to backtrack as far as the late 1950s and the scientist Werner von Braun. Uh, His is a complicated history, which is a pretty nice way of saying he was once a Nazi. Or at least he worked for the Nazis during World War II, developing long-range rocket-based weaponry, and he was one of the engineers responsible for the infamous V-2 rocket. Some accounts suggest that he wasn't particularly sympathetic to the Nazis, but rather worked under them because he had little choice unless he was to abandon his life's pursuit of engineering. And so essentially he was saying... I had to work for them. They were the ones who were letting me do science. Now, I find that explanation somewhat unconvincing and certainly not satisfying. But at any rate, von Braun, along with uh, more than 1,500 other German engineers and scientists, uh, they were all secretly whisked away to America after World War II as part of Operation Paperclip. So... While the United States and the rest of the world were, you know, seeking out Nazi officers and trying to hold them accountable for various war crimes up through World War II and and after, uh, the scientists and engineers were kind of spared that because they were seen as being useful assets. So they were relocated to America to work for us instead. That's also a fascinating story, that entire story of Operation Paperclip. It's one I should probably do a full episode on. And maybe I'll get some of the lads from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know to come and join me for that one. Anyway, one of von Braun's ideas that, you know, once he made the transition over to America was to use a multi-stage rocket in order to travel to the moon. But he also had the idea of using the upper stage of the rocket to convert it in orbit to serve as a scientific laboratory. The upper stage would hold propellant during launch, so it would be part of your launch vehicle, but then a subsequent visiting crew could go to that uh, that stage of the rocket, which would be in orbit, and then they could vent any remaining propellant out of that. And it's an airtight container, so they could then fill the container with breathable oxygen and convert it into an orbiting laboratory. He called this proposal Horizon. And it would turn out that Skylab, the United States' first space station, would kind of follow this design. Now, largely this was thanks to Von Braun advocating for this approach, as he anticipated he and his team wouldn't have a whole lot of work to do once the Apollo missions completed. And, you know, guys got to get paid. 
So in the late 1960s, NASA began to consider, and not for the first time, the potential for establishing a space station in orbit around Earth for a more lasting presence in space. The Apollo program was proving to be a success after an initial catastrophe with Apollo 1, and you had the first astronauts landing on the moon in 1969, so the agency really began to look ahead while still pursuing additional lunar missions. The Soviets were planning out how to combine military operations with a civilian space station program, but NASA was looking to create a more persistent presence in orbit, and that became the origin of the Skylab project. Now, the plan originally was to launch Skylab as a wet workstation. Uh, That means following the style of Von Braun, having a multi-stage rocket in which all the stages are holding propellant and one of them you then convert into a workstation. However, that changed for a couple different reasons. One is that NASA originally had plans for additional Apollo missions after Apollo 17, but those got scrapped. And it meant that Effectively, NASA had a couple of extra Saturn V rockets, uh, so they could then launch Skylab on a Saturn V rocket, one of the ones that was originally going to be part of the Apollo program. And thus, they could have a special payload attached to this rocket that would hold the scientific instruments and a solar observatory, as well as an orbiting workstation where astronauts would actually live and work. Uh, So the upper stage of this launch vehicle the S-4B stage, would become the orbital workstation. Again, originally the plan was this was going to be a wet workshop. They were going to pump out or vent out the propellant, the extra propellant inside of it, and then convert it into a workstation. But as it would turn out, by the time it came to launch, the plans had changed. So the S-4B stage didn't need to hold any propellant at all. So it could be just a dry workshop which dramatically simplifies things. Uh, There would be no need to do that conversion stage while in orbit. You could actually set everything out here on Earth. And the reason that was possible is that the Saturn V launch vehicle, which again was not originally intended to be a Skylab launch vehicle, is powerful enough with just the earlier stages to get the payload into orbit without the need for the, uh, the, the Saturn IV B stage to also be part of the launch vehicle. So the station itself would have lots of different scientific instruments aboard. Uh, A large focus was on the study of the sun and tightly wrapped around the S4B stage was this micrometeoroid shield. Uh, This shield was meant to do two major things, to protect the, the space station against micrometeoroids, so tiny particles traveling at intense speeds that could cause massive damage if they were to collide with the space station, but it was also supposed to be a heat shield because since this laboratory was meant to study the sun, it was going to be exposed to solar radiation and it could get pretty warm out there if you didn't have a way of, you know, throwing some shade, I guess. And this was all supposed to deploy once the station achieved orbit. The idea was that the uh, Skylab would get into orbit, it would deploy its solar arrays, and it would deploy its micrometeoroid shield. That did not happen. See, I use words like it was it was to deploy and it and that the solar panels were to provide electricity because these things did not go smoothly when it came time for Skylab to actually launch. 
which was in May of 1973, two years after the first Salyut station went into orbit. So during launch, the micrometeoroid shield was damaged. It became dislodged and it tore away from the spacecraft. It also damaged one of the solar panels, which subsequently also tore away from the spacecraft. So you only had one main solar panel left behind. I mean, you had one, it had some for the solar observatory, which was part of the scientific instruments, but the main uh, orbiting workstation only had one solar panel left and it was partially jammed. So it was unable to fully extend to the way it was supposed to be. The shield, like I said, was meant to provide protection not just against micrometeoroids, but also heat. So without it, the station started to reach temperatures of 52 degrees Celsius. And that's about 125 degrees Fahrenheit. That's way too hot for astronauts to take up residence for any sort of extended stay. The first Skylab mission with a crew was called Skylab 2. Uh, This gets a little confusing because, I mean, if you look at the Soviets and the Salyut missions, those numbers like Salyut 2, Salyut 3, that refers to separate space stations, right? Each of those are space stations that either got into orbit or suffered a, a failure. But Skylab, when we talk about Skylab 2, Skylab 3, and Skylab 4, those are just missions that were going to the one Skylab station. There was only ever one Skylab. So when you hear Skylab 2, that's referring to the mission that went to the station. It brought the first three astronauts up to the Skylab station. And obviously, one of the top priorities for that mission was to repair the space station after its troublesome launch and try to get it into working order. Several days had passed since it had launched And there were already some big issues that the astronauts had to address. First of all was that problem with the heat. So they installed an ingenious little uh, thing to fix it. And um, it was good because there was a real fear that the entire mission was going to have to get scrapped because of the launch problems that had happened. But the crew of Skylab 2 were able to install a new sun shield, a parasol essentially – It was a a temporary fix. A later Skylab mission would install a more permanent heat shield. But this was like a little parasol, like just like you would hold up, you know, if you were a Victorian and you wanted to take a stroll in the park. And uh, they installed it into the station, which kept the station at a more tolerable temperature. The crew also made repairs to the exterior of the space station and a couple of EVAs extravehicular activities, spacewalks, in other words. They unjammed the remaining main solar panel, and the duration of Skylab 2's mission aboard the space station was 28 days. So they were up there for four weeks. Uh, Pretty phenomenal. Then you had two other Skylab missions. You had Skylab 3 and Skylab 4. Those would see crews spend 59 days with Skylab 3 and 84 days for Skylab 4. Pretty phenomenal. And uh, here's a cool personal connection that I just thought I would throw in there. One of the astronauts in the Skylab 3 mission was Owen Garriott, a scientist astronaut. He was up there for that 59-day period, as I said. He would later go on a second space mission in 1983. He was aboard the space shuttle Columbia, and he also was the father of Richard Garriott. That name might not mean anything to you, unless you're a big computer game fan. 
like computer role-playing game fan because Richard Garriott is also known as Lord British. He is the guy who created the Ultima series of computer games. He's also one of just a few civilians who ever got to visit the International Space Station. I'll talk about that in another episode. I used to chat with Richard Garriott at conventions. I met him and like we knew each other a little bit and would talk. I wouldn't say we were friends because we were never that close, but we were friendly with one another. Uh, And that is as far as my personal connection to Skylab or the ISS goes. But it's still kind of cool, I think. Anyway, so the first mission with a crew launched in May 1973. The final mission with a crew returned to Earth in February 1974. So you're looking at less than a year for all the Skylab missions. However, Skylab itself stayed up in orbit for quite some time longer than that. NASA actually hoped to be able to boost Skylab to a higher orbit and to send space shuttle missions there and extend its mission even longer. However, the space shuttle program ran behind schedule, and Skylab ultimately ran out of time. Uh, Increased solar activity and a deteriorating orbit meant that Skylab's days were numbered. It was going to re-enter Earth's atmosphere. There was no way to avoid it because there was no way to push it further out into orbit. In July 1979, Skylab re-entered Earth's atmosphere. NASA had previously attempted to adjust Skylab's orientation. This was in an effort to kind of try to steer it toward like an ocean so it wouldn't fall over a populated area. There was a real concern, and in some places, like a media circus, regarding where the space station might fall and that it could potentially, you know, kill someone or cause massive damage or or collide with like, you know, a population center. A NASA study indicated that the agency itself was concerned about such an outcome. Now, as it happened, the station did not hit the ocean as intended, at least not all of it. Some parts of it hit the Indian Ocean, uh, but it broke apart in Earth's atmosphere, much lower than anyone expected, actually. It's, it remained intact far longer than people thought it would, and pieces of it hit a largely unpopulated region of Western Australia. Uh, and a lot of folks retrieved pieces of Skylab and put them on display. I think that was even in like a Miss Universe pageant or something, but yeah, crazy stuff. So let's talk about some of the tech aboard Skylab and what it was doing up there. So the parameters of the Skylab mission were to, quote, observe the Earth to study natural resources and the environment, observe the sun to study high-energy solar activity, study the effects of weightlessness on the human body and assess crew adaptation to long-duration spaceflight, study materials processing in microgravity, and perform experiments submitted by students for a classroom in space. Much of the scientific instrumentation aboard Skylab was optical, which means telescopes and related cameras and sensors. Chief among these were the instruments attached to the Apollo Telescope Mount, or ATM. This major part of Skylab had an octagonal structure that measured 3.4 meters across and 4.4 meters long. And within this octagonal structure was a cylindrical canister mounted in gimbal rings. These are rings that can turn in uh, a different, you know, different planes so that you can reorient something that's mounted inside them. The gimbal rings allowed for a range of motion that let the cylinder point toward a specific region of the sun despite, you know, 
other things going on in space. Now, this was something I had not considered, but NASA had to solve a problem in order to get all of this to work. Because we know from the laws of motion that every action has an equal but opposite reaction. So when we push against the Earth, technically the Earth is pushing back. It's just most of us are not dense enough for anyone to really notice this. But in microgravity, astronaut movements in the Skylab living quarters could conceivably cause enough motion to disrupt sensitive scientific experiments that required instruments to be precisely aimed at a specific point on the sun. So if you need to be focused on a very specific region of the sun, but you're worried about motion, you have to solve that problem. So to mitigate this, Skylab itself, the entire space station, had installed three control moment gyros, or CMGs, to stabilize the station. And these gyros were a double gimbal-mounted and electrically driven system that could keep Skylab's orientation relatively maintained. And I say relatively because it wasn't quite finely tuned enough to stabilize the instruments aboard the ATM. Uh, I'll quote a NASA document about how they achieved even greater precision. Quote, This was accomplished with a solar pointing control system, PCS. The PCS sensed the sun's center to a few tenths of a second of arc and sent error signals into the torque motors that controlled the rotational positions of the ATM canister gimbals. Offset pointing in yaw or in pitch by steps of 1.25 seconds of arc up to 24 minutes of arc could be introduced by counter-rotating a pair of quartz wedges placed in the solar beam incident on the yaw solar sensor or a similar pair for pitch. These solar sensors were one of the few items inherited from the AOSO. Okay, uh, end quote right there. So Jonathan here, here's a side note. The AOSO stands for Advanced Orbiting Solar Observatory, which was a project that NASA had planned in the 1960s but ultimately had to scrap when it was clear that the tech wasn't really ready yet and the expense of the project would be way beyond NASA's budget. All right, let me get back to the quote. Control of offset pointing by rotating the prisms was accomplished by the crewman with his panel joystick. Digital indicators read out yaw and pitch to one second of arc and roll to one minute of arc, end quote. All right, that's really complicated. It gets really technical. But essentially what it's saying is that this system could correct for those motions and keep the canister relatively uh, stable with regard to whatever it was aimed at. So kind of like if you think of like stabilization technologies and digital cameras, it's in concept similar to that. So much of the observational work done aboard Skylab had to do with the sun, with the instruments taking multiple images of the sun at a specific wavelength of light. These instruments are called spectroheliographs, and they produce a monochromatic image, so a you know, black and white image. So why would you focus on a specific wavelength of light? Well, it's one way to study the various elemental components of a star, as different materials will give off different wavelengths of light. So by looking at which wavelengths are the most intense, you can kind of get an idea of which elements are the most plentiful in something like a star, like the sun. 
On board Skylab, astronauts performed all sorts of scientific experiments, including medical experiments and some designed by students back on Earth. The crew also conducted some observations of Earth, which was quite an achievement because the planned experiments and instruments for that purpose have been part of a previously canceled NASA project called the Apollo Applications Mission. The history of NASA is one that's filled with lots of projects that were meant to be but never came to fruition or were only partially developed before they were abandoned. And it's not always possible to salvage stuff from that. But in this case, Skylab was able to incorporate some of the plans for the Apollo applications mission and incorporate some Earth observation experiments with Skylab. In all, the astronauts oversaw more than 100 experiments ranging from using X-ray and ultraviolet cameras and spectrographs to study the sun to measuring stuff like mineral loss in a human body due to an extended stay in microgravity. Some of the student projects included things like observing Earth's atmosphere's ability to absorb radiant heat, uh, X-ray emissions from Jupiter, and capillary action studies in a state of freefall. While the collective time spent aboard Skylab amounted to 171 days uh, for all of the crewed missions, the amount of work done was truly astronomical, I guess. Now, when we come back, I'll cover one other really big aspect of Skylab, and that's what it's like taking a shower in space. But first, let's take another break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'll really have to do a full episode about Skylab in the future so that I can actually cover the whole thing and all the the science and technology aboard. Because I know I'm just glancing over the topic in this episode. But that's because we have so much to cover to talk about space stations in general. However, one thing I just could not leave behind was the shower aboard Skylab. Now, you might wonder, how does one shower in microgravity? If you've ever seen astronauts playing with I'm sorry, I'm sorry, experimenting with liquids in outer space, you know that those liquids tend to form little wobbly globes and float around their environment. You don't have gravity, or really you don't have sufficient gravity, to have them form into drop shapes and fall to the ground. And yet Skylab had a shower aboard, a true luxury when compared against earlier U.S. spacecraft like the Apollo and Gemini capsules, which reportedly could get really stinky, particularly as missions stretched beyond a week in length. All right, so imagine that you've got a round shower curtain and it's on, quote unquote, the floor. Uh, The top of the shower curtain is connected to a metal ring. So really you see a metal ring and some material folded beneath it. So you step into the middle of this metal ring. Then you squat down, you grab that ring, and you lift it all the way up to the ceiling where it locks in place. And you essentially create your own little shower cylinder. Now, okay, how do you do that? Because of microgravity, because you're going to be floating around everywhere. Well, on the floor of the station, which is weird to think of because – I mean, up and down are such weird concepts when you're talking about space. But on the floor were a pair of bands where you would just kind of slip your feet in. And so little restraints to hold you down against the, the floor of the station so you don't float off with the suds. The shower itself was a handheld nozzle attached to a hose. And you would put heated water which was taken from the waste management compartment water heater. However, it was not, I should point out, actual wastewater. That'd be gross. Uh, And it served as the bathing liquid, or at least the heated liquid. This water in a canister would get a pressurization boost from some nitrogen gas. So now you have some pressurized water in this canister, and then you would connect it to the shower mechanism. So the pressurized gas that had enough of the pressure to propel the water out of the nozzle when you had the switch on the nozzle set to open. A soap dispenser with eight whole milliliters of soap in it would serve for each shower. And uh, it had Velcro on it, so you could attach it to the quote-unquote ceiling of the shower. So you also couldn't just use a drain for the shower, right? Because the water's not just going to flow down to the floor. So to take care of the water, you also had a suction device. You were using essentially a vacuum to collect the water because the water wouldn't 
you know, drain out otherwise. So astronauts would use a vacuum to remove water both from the shower and off of themselves as well. According to Jack Lusma, the experience was not necessarily relaxing. You had to mix water in a three-quart container and make sure you got the right mix of hot to cold so that you would have a, a comfortable shower temperature. The soap, he said, often left the astronauts feeling itchy. He said that it was better served as a veterinarian soap as opposed to for humans. Um, he also said that the water would evaporate off of your skin very quickly because you were in a low-pressure environment. And that meant that you would start to get really cold because that evaporating process would pull energy away from you, heat energy. So you'd start to get the chills after a shower. Also, drying off took a really long time. So long, in fact, that some astronauts opted for using a sponge bath rather than using the shower. Though they could take as many showers as like one every week or 10 days if they so chose. Now, according to the astronauts, it took about an hour to take a shower. Some accounts I've seen suggest it might have even taken longer than that when you factor in all the different prep work and cleanup work needed to do the whole process. And in fact, some of the, the estimations I saw said it was closer to two hours. Uh, that is not two hours of you taking a really long, luxurious shower. That's rather two hours com to complete the entire task from you know prep to cleanup. And that's another reason that a lot of astronauts chose to go with sponge baths instead because they felt it was a hassle. NASA eventually concluded that the shower was ultimately perhaps a little too complicated to operate, and if astronauts weren't going to use it, there might be better ways to make sure folks don't stink up the joint rather than incorporating a piece of gear that people would avoid using anyway, kind of like a stinky, sullen teenager. And, um, oh, I also need to talk about the toilet. So we talked a bit about how awkward pooping in space was for the Apollo crews, and, you know, they had to use, you know, essentially a bag with adhesive on it to, to glue to their butts in order to collect their poops. Well, the Skylab version was better, I guess. Uh, Skylab's toilet was mounted on the wall of the bathroom inside the space station. The toilet had a hinged seat on it. Uh, inside the toilet was a mesh bag. So if you needed to poop, you would first put a fecal collection bag inside this mesh liner. Um, then, uh... Okay, well, let me just read from NASA to make sure I get this right. Here we go. Quote, Air was drawn through the fecal bag from holes in the seat and exhausted through the bag's vapor port through the mesh liner into the fecal collection receptacle and then through a filter where odors were removed before it was recirculated into the cabin by a fan. To use the toilet for defecation, the crewman sat on the con contoured seat then fastened a belt across his lap to hold him securely in position. Handholds and foot restraints allowed him to maintain a sufficiently tight seal on the seat as airflow from the fan separated the fecal matter from his body and deposited it in the fecal collection bag. A separate fecal bag was used for each defecation. End quote. Which, thank goodness for that, right? As for urination, well, again, to quote from NASA, quote, the crewman could urinate from either a standing or sitting position. A urine collector located on the wall just below the fecal collector also utilized airflow as a substitute for gravity to draw the urine through a receiver and hose into a urine collection bag. An alternate device incorporated a funnel-like attachment through which the bag could be filled by bladder pressure. So I suppose, uh, by the way, end quote, I suppose it's good to remind ourselves that around this time, all astronauts 
were male. Not that I'm saying that was a good thing, only that it was a true thing at that time. Because many of the experiments aboard Skylab related to medical studies like the effects of microgravity and being in space for prolonged periods, much of that waste was meant to be returned to Earth for examination. So these bags would be vacuum-dried and stored for return to Earth. Uh, That included feces and, according to NASA, vomit, because motion sickness and nausea were a thing up there too. So space sure is glamorous. As for the urine, that went into a centrifuge to separate the gases inside the liquid from the liquid itself. Then the liquid sample would be frozen for storage and to prevent any chemical changes that might occur otherwise in order to be returned to Earth. Now, not all of it was stored and you know saved for, for examination. Some of it was. Some of it actually would go into a waste containment system aboard the space station. So just want to make it clear that the astronauts weren't bringing all of their poops and peas back home, just, you know, some of them. Oh, and some other fun and less disgusting anecdotes. During the Gemini missions, astronauts typically didn't really complain about the space food that NASA packed for them, but in the Apollo missions, that changed. Astronauts really hated it. And so there was an effort put forward to make the food aboard Skylab more palatable because astronauts were going to be up there for much longer. And NASA wisely judged that the food was bad. It was going to have a negative impact on crew morale and thus potentially a negative impact on productivity. So they worked pretty hard to try and fix that while also making sure to meet the nutritional needs of the astronauts. Now, some of that food that was sent aboard Skylab in that initial launch was deemed to be dangerous by the time the first crew got to Skylab. Because remember, that that laboratory had been exposed to very high temperatures because the heat shield had failed to deploy because it was stripped away in launch. So the stuff that was in cans had been heated to a point where it could potentially be dangerous. So that could no longer be consumed. But there was other stuff that was frozen and it was unaffected because it was protected in a freezer. And there were other types of space food that were also fine. So not everything was wasted. Also, because Skylab used airflow to substitute for gravity, so you, you know, use the flow of air, like you had had vents that were suctioning up air and other vents that were blowing out air. Well, astronauts found that stuff had a tendency to kind of migrate toward the air filters where the system was siphoning up air to recycle it. Uh, so if something got lost, they would just look around the air filters because typically that's where stuff was because that flow of air was pulling things toward it. So they actually made one surface that had one of these filters a workspace because the tools would tend to stay put on the filter rather than just float off, which is kind of interesting. It's something you don't necessarily think about when you're not in microgravity. Generally speaking, Skylab wasn't just an efficient science platform, nor was it just a space station that was up in orbit for way longer than we could actually use it. I mean, when you think about it, it was up there for several years, but we only used it for less than a year. Uh, But it was also a learning experience for NASA and would go a long way toward informing the agency about designing the next big space station. We'll talk more about that in our next episode. So things to look forward to in our next episode. We're going to talk about the Russian space station Mir. That's very important. We're going to talk about the proposal of space station Freedom, the U.S. space station that never was, and the birth of the International Space Station and how it has evolved over time. (laughs) 
Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.